Fashion and beauty are serious business. On this podcast, we will hear from amazing creative entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore their unique success stories, learn from experts, and hear about their journeys. Steve Jobs famously said that, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So let's get crazy. I'm your host, Ann Zuckerman, and this is the Just Wanted to Ask podcast. Ladies, have you ever had one of those uncomfortable headlight moments? Don't you want to be heard without distraction? Bezzy broad discs are your solution. Go to justwantedtoask.com and look for Bezzy broad discs. everyone. Today, I'm truly pleased to have Rose Rybacek as my guest. So what do a blood-curdling scream, a raging bull moose, a mournful wolf howl, and a near-disastrous chimney fire have in common? Those are just a few of the challenges that Rose faced when she and her family moved to the wilds of Alaska. Rose is a lifetime member of the Pioneers of Alaska. She served as editor of the Alaska Miner, and she was columnist of the Fairbanks Daily News Miner and the All Alaska Weekly. Rose also served as president of the Alaska State PTA and the Alaska Miners Association and has been a licensed ham radio operator for over 50 years. And I am so excited to have you with me today, Rose. Thank you, Anne. So I guess the first question that I would ask is, I know that you moved to Alaska with your family in 1958. Tell us about uh, where, how you moved from there to Live and Good. Okay. Um, well, my husband was in the military, and that's what brought us to Alaska in 1958. And... Uh, he got discharged in 1961, and rather than um, leave Alaska, we just stayed here. He had met some old timers, old prospectors, and one of them had some mining claims up near Livingwood. Well, my husband Stan always wanted to be a miner. My dad, who he and my mother and three siblings had come with us. My dad was a miner, but a coal miner. This was a gold mining operation, a little bit different than coal mining. But the, the two of them got together and decided that we should get this mining operation going. So, so we did. Um, well, we, we did that in, in 1961. Stan didn't get discharged until 63. But by that time, my dad had had an accident and he and my family had left. They left us alone up here, but we decided that since we had this mining operation, it had a nice cabin on it. We would just go up there and spend our winters and our summers and we'd mine and, you know, we just live the life. So that's how we uh, managed to go up there. We, we uh, had three little kids. One was one years old, one was two years old, and one was four years old. And off we go to live the life 
on this mining claim. That's how we got there. Wow. So you were off in Live and Good, and I know from your book, you had limited access to go back to Fairbanks to pick up provisions. So what did you do? Well, uh, we were actually, the town of Live and Good was 10 miles away from us. Uh, and the mail plane came in once, um, like once a week, it would come in. And um, the summertime was great. You could run in and out the, the highway, but they did not keep the road plowed in the wintertime. So depending on how the snow came, uh, the road would get closed. Sometimes uh, October, sometimes the first part of uh, the end of September. One time, I think it was the September 8th, so you sort of had to be prepared. And uh, from then on, we, uh, we had a tracked vehicle. It was called a weasel. It was uh, a military one that we got through salvage. So we would take that and go into Live and Good and check our mail once, um, like once a week. But sometimes, depending on the weather, the mail plane wouldn't make it into Live and Good. And one year, I'd ordered all my Christmas presents, and three weeks before Christmas, that mail plane that didn't make it in, and I'm sitting there wondering, you know, hmm, this is going to be a most interesting Christmas. What kind of presents do you make? Well, the day before Christmas, the mail plane buzzed our house. Can you believe that? <laughs> so we leaped in the weasel and headed to town, and we got our Christmas presents. But um, it was... Um, it was quite an experience. Wow, that's some Christmas. <laughs> and what did you, your kids think of this? Well, you know, they were so little, they thought everything's normal. You know, they just grew up thinking that's the way everybody lives. Um, and at 19, let me see, Susie, you know, it was our oldest one, got into school in uh, 63. And so we... Uh, decided that we probably should move back to town to, to expose the kids to, you know, to, to other kids and things, because living like that, you get real odd, I think, is, you know, you see people and you hide behind your mama's apron strings and stuff, you know, so we did move back, um, back to town, and um, they had quite a time adjusting because it was so different. Um, I remember one time, we had gone to visit a neighbor across the street from our house. And uh, the kids loved watching TV because, of course, they'd never seen it. And we'd been watching, I don't know, Lone Ranger or something on our TV. And the commercial, the it program ended. So we went across to see our neighbor. And there was another program on it. So pretty quick, the kids are all hanging there. And they said, Mom, can we go home? We want to go watch the Cowboys again. <laughs> That's fascinating. So uh, before we hopped on the podcast, we were talking about communications. Yes. So when you were in Live and Good, how did you communicate with people? Um, well, you could write a letter. You could write a letter, and if you made it in there, usually we'd go get the mail after the mail plane had landed, so it would take a week. To, the next week, it would, your letter would go out, and then you might get one the next time. Um, there was... Uh, it was KJNT, which is a radio station uh, in North Pole, which is fairly close to Fairbanks here. 
And they had what they called Trapper Hotline, I think is what they called it. But every evening they would broadcast messages that they had received to people out in the bush that had no other communication. So we would religiously listen to that and see if, because every once in a while somebody would say, you know, this has happened or something else has happened or something we needed to do. So we did that. So that was our only communication while we were at the mine. Wow. Um, that's amazing. And when did you actually decide to get into ham radio? Well, we moved back um, to Fairbanks in 63. It was actually North Pole. And calling the lower 48, as we called the states down there, was very expensive. It, it could cost you a dollar a minute. So phone calls were very few and far between between myself and my parents or, you know, anybody. But this neighbor that we visited when the kids wanted to go home because of their, they didn't have the right TV program had just gotten their ham license. And they were able to run phone patches for me. Um, and so my folks lived in a town that didn't have any ham people in it. But about 60 miles away, there was a very nice gentleman, and he would he'd connect up and we'd run a phone patch, and I could talk. And all the cost, what it cost us was between the, those 60 miles. So, so boy, this is, this is good. We need to do that. So my husband, Stan, and I, we both studied. He didn't have to study too much because he was in the Air Force in electronics. And so he knew a lot of this. Me, I knew nothing. But um, we studied. We went to get our, uh, you had to go get tested. And they only came to Fairbanks twice a year. And so the first time we went was in like December. And I, uh, what did I pass? I, I passed the code. No, I didn't. I passed the theory. I passed the theory thing. But when it came to the code, I was shaking so much that I could not, I couldn't write. I could read what it was coming, but I was so nervous that I couldn't write it. And so I, I failed that one. Um, Stan had passed the theory and he didn't pass the code either. But I talked to the guy who was giving the instructions and said, I just, I just, you know, froze up. And I reached out and grabbed him with my ice-cold hands, and he said, okay, you can take the test again. So I did take it, and that time I passed it. So I could talk on the radio. Stan could do Morse code. So he was very kind and set up a nice radio. We had the nice radio set up. And then there's the problem of mic fright. Oh, my goodness. I, I maybe have a chicken at heart, I don't know, but I would pick up the microphone and I'd listen and I'd hear people talking and I'd hear people calling CQ, which is which means I want to talk to you. And then I'd set the microphone down and go do my dishes or whatever I was doing. Until one day I was listening and there was this very melodious female voice on there. She sounded so friendly. So I picked up the mic. And that time I actually gave my call, even though I was probably shaking a bit. And she came back and she was so friendly. And then I found out later that she had founded the Ham Radio Group. 
that I became very involved in. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever talked to her. Her name was Dee Marie. She was just really sweet. And so that's how I got into ham radio. And then I had a very nice gentleman down in Montana where I could call my parents with, at least weekly. It was wonderful. That's amazing. I don't know how you passed the Morse code test. <laughs> if I had had to do that, I would still not have a license. Well, um, I almost didn't. I almost didn't. But, but, but I, you know, I was bound and determined I was going to save that money. <laughs> and tell our listeners about the YL system. Well, the YL system, when it was first um, organized, it was in 1963. And it was established to handle emergencies because at that time we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have all of these things, but a lot of people had ham radios. And so if you had a flat tire and you couldn't do anything uh, about it, you know, you could get on there and call and you'd have an emergency. And so this was a place where emergencies, big ones or small ones would show up. And I don't know how many emergencies they'd handle. Uh, it was it was amazing, um, and of course it's evolved now. It's um, we don't really have emergencies except once in a great while someone out on a boat or something might have a, something that they're outside of any uh, service. But um, uh, members can make um, contacts with each other. For we have a very beautiful awards program that's really fun. But I think the main part of it is it's like a big family. And you get to know these people clear across the country and some of them in foreign countries. And um, in fact, I've got one that I haven't talked to her for a long time, but she's in New Zealand and we correspond quite a bit. And uh, it's just really great. Yeah, ham radio has been absolutely amazing. The number of people you can communicate with around the world um, with limited equipment it's just incredible. And yeah, the, ladies, I, the ladies who founded the YL, they were interested in communications for uh, emergencies, but they, were also, they also enabled people to communicate with families as well. Exactly. Yeah. I think my most exciting contact was one in which... I had a phone patch. I could run phone patches for people, too. And I had this call from the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Glacier, who was um, in the Antarctica. And they had a, an employee who lived in Nome, Alaska, which is, you know, up north. But um, so anyway, I ran a phone patch for him. Um, they were um, Clinkett or... Uh, the Indians or something. So they spoke in their own language until they'd say over and then you'd flip the switch. And so I, I have no idea what they talked about, but there was probably a 15 or 20 minute phone patch. It was really neat. And then I get a big envelope from uh, the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Glacier later. And he said that was the thousandth phone patch he'd run since they'd been on that tour. And uh, it was a nice picture of uh, every all of them, and they'd all signed it. So that was that was pretty exciting. Oh, that's amazing! That's absolutely amazing. 
Um, so the YL system has been around for quite a long time. Since 1963. Yes, and you've been president a number of times. It's been an amazing experience being mem a member of the YL. Um, I, my husband joined the YL a, a number of years ago. And uh, as I told you previously, we were supposed to go to convention and I envisioned my name badge saying wife. And I said, wait a second, this organization was founded by women. I cannot go as wife. Um, or actually at the convention, it would have been his call sign uh, with YL after it, meaning that I was attached to him. So I went out and I got my tech license and then realized that I couldn't do very much with it and ended up getting a general license so that I was totally legitimate. And now I never get on the radio, but <laughs> I have. But you can, you can if you yes. want to. And, and of course, it is the YL system and YL means young lady, which I think is really great because the other sex is the OMs, they're the old men, which I think is marvelous. And to begin with, when the YL system was founded, only YLs were allowed to join. And it wasn't too long until the OMs decided, you know, this is a good thing. We want to get in. So we let them in. <laughs> and then they started taking over. Well, they've pretty much taken over now, haven't they? Well, <laughs> but it we took have them to, a long time. Yes, we have to get more YLs involved. <laughs> I have done some contesting, so it's not that I've never gotten on the radio. So that's a good thing. <laughs> but I have to admit, I like you had uh, definitely, definitely had Mike fright, and I think I still do. Uh, I I don't exactly know what to say or what to do, and. Uh, but it doesn't take me long once I get started. So who knows? Maybe at some point I'll <laughs> shove my husband out of his seat and get on his radio. So that's all fascinating. Uh, and so, yes, you've met so many people around the world, and it's, an, it's sure. just an incredible experience. Yeah, I, uh, I had a contact one with King Hussein of Jordan. I thought that was pretty neat. That must have been... And his wife. I got to talk to his wife, too, and I don't remember her name, but I think it was Anne. Yeah. Um, that's incredible. So how long did were you mining in Livenwood or outside of Livenwood? Um, we mined until we got into some automobile accidents in 93 and stopped. But the uh, property is still there, and uh, my daughter owns it now. And you did some pretty exciting stuff there. I, I know that at one point we had a bottle of beet wine. <laughs> we, we did. We made wine here in Alaska um, out of a lot of different things. Um, a lot of them were the like the wild berries, the raspberries, the blueberries and things. Um, the beet was the most interesting one, but it was good. We even made some mead, which is honey wine. And then the we moved to uh, Washington State for a while so I could be closer to my mother, who was um, in her 90s. And uh, we moved over a 1,000 bottles of wine. Can you believe that? This is really good stuff, too. <laughs> well, it was. It was. Um, we drank, 
uh, Larry and I drank ours right away. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, we finished the bottle with no problem. So it was definitely good. So what other things that I, at, at the one part in the book, you made ice cream and did all sorts of stuff while you were still alive at, at, at the mine. Yes. Um, you know, this, it was, um, a really odd mine because we had like 60 feet of deep frozen overburden. And so we had a big wall of ice. And in that wall, we would find bones of various critters like the woolly mammoth, uh, mastodon, um, elk, and I don't know. We just had uh, found a lot of different bones and one time I found uh, some green leaves that were way down. They, they must have been frozen for thousands of years. By the time I got them home, they turned brown. So I, I never got them. I was planning on drying them. I thought this is really interesting. Um, but that's um, we could go up there and chip off this ice and make ice cream, which was pretty exciting when you're, well, we, have, we had no electricity. We did have a generator we could run to do laundry had run our washing machine with that but um we had you know no running water and no electricity and burned wood in the stoves and it was um it was a really interesting life and it was a great place to raise your kids in the summer you know because after after they started going to school we would go up and spend summers up there that's fascinating. So you actually saw the different layers um, underneath underneath oh, the permafrost. and It was just really amazing. Um, there would be big ice lenses, big, big round chunks of it, just huge pieces of, but it was all black. I don't, I think it had to have black dirt in it or something. I, I don't know what made it so black, but it was definitely all black and and you could see that there would be like two or three layers where um, there was, would be vegetation. So it, at that point in time, it must have been warm enough for vegetation to grow. And then it was cold again. So there was more, um, more ice lenses. It was, it was just really an interesting um, thing we had. We'd, um, we had a dog, a Labrador, who really thought that he ought to get the bones. And so when I would go off to um, clean off the face a little bit, we'd try, I'd try to beat him up there in case um, there was something. And every once in a while, he'd win. But most of the time, I won. We had one critter that thawed out that um, we got the skin and the esophagus and, I mean, all these interesting things of it. Um, and he got a few of me chewed up, but... <laughs> It was just an interesting thing. And then we went underground. We, we went underground mining. We just drilled a hole down underneath all this permafrost stuff. And I did that for a couple of years. And then what did you have to do? Did you have to, um, how did you actually pan? Did you, you panned in the water? Well, or? Um, we would, uh, we have a sluice box. It's what they call it. And, and it has water. You, you feed the water. Um, when we were, um, before we started going underground, 
um, we had like a D8 cat that we would, um, Sam would run over there and get gravel and stuff and push it to the sluice box. And I would use a giant and wash it down through there. And then when you decided to clean up the sluice box, um, then you'd run it through a, a smaller um, easy panner type thing um, and get it down. And the final thing was you had to pan it. You had to pan the um, your cleanup. That's intense work. A lot of work, but a lot of fun because, you know, it's really exciting when when you're in that gold pan and all you got is dirt and the next thing you know, you see gold popping up. It's wow. fun. It shines nicely. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I have to admit, I have um, tiny, tiny, tiny little pebbles. <laughs> Yeah, well. <laughs> from my for my tourist uh, yes, this yes. that was fun wasn't it out there panning and it was. It was. Um, I loved that we, the YL system did have their convention in Fairbanks uh, several years ago when I got to go uh, back. I had been to Fairbanks once before and oh, it was very exciting. And how, how much has changed? Oh, how oh much goodness. has changed? Isn't that um, yeah. I was in Alaska about 40 years ago. And I had gotten it up to Fairbanks, <laughs> and there was very little there. I can honestly say there was very little there. So it was exciting to go back. And then I got to do some of the tourist stuff, like Pan for Gold. And that was amazing, absolutely amazing. And um, it, it was fun. It was really fun. Um, so the other part, the other major event that happens in that area is the Iditarod. And so, but that started farther up the river from there. It's, it started pretty close to Nana, which is about 60 miles from Fairbanks. Um, the, the Iditarod is a commemorative race of the Serum Rum to Nome. Um, Nome was suffering uh, diphtheria, and they, they'd run out. Their serum had gotten too old or something, and it wasn't effective. And uh, some of the dog mushers gathered up a bunch of serum, and they they made a big run to Nome. And uh, it's the route has changed from the from the original Iditarod. It starts in Anchorage now, uh, but it's uh, it's still a, a major race for sure. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. So it, it, how much has Fairbanks changed in over the years? It's certainly um, a lot more cosmopolitan than it was before. You would, I would never have recognized it. When we first came here, some of the streets were still gravel, you know. In fact, quite a few of them were. Uh, so you'd have a pretty dusty in the summertime. Of course, it's all paved now, and it just sprawled all over the place. It's um, it's definitely grown, and um, you know when we Piggly Wiggly isn't here anymore. That was my favorite grocery store. <laughs> uh, yeah, when I it was really interesting for me when I visited Alaska forty years ago 
that there were still a lot of subsistence farmers that came into the city for religious events and other events in the city. And that was true of Fairbanks as well. Um, and there still are a lot of subsistence farmers that um, do live around Fairbanks as well. There's, um, there's quite a few, but they seem to be shrinking. They're kind of like the small miner, which is um, um, almost <laughs> historically now, instead of being active, you know, um, regulations and things kind of cause trouble. And that's, and you wrote an article for the paper for a number of years. I did. Um, and it was uh, during the time when mining was being regulated. They, they were just starting to regulate mining. Before that, it was do what you want to. And it was, um, we had well over a thousand small miners. And um, I haven't heard lately, the last time I heard we were down to about a hundred. Um, it, it really took a hit, but um, yeah, I, I did write that and I put all those articles into a book. I've just been having so much fun writing books. It's been fun. Well, you have some amazing books. And for our listeners, I will say that they are available through Amazon. And in once the this podcast is published in the show notes, you can find links to uh, Amazon and, and the books that you've written. So for anybody who's interested, definitely read the show notes. And we would appreciate it if you would uh, download, uh, rate, and review the podcast. That would be very helpful. Uh, Rose, it was wonderful speaking with you. I am so, I, I, I just, you're amazing. You're absolutely amazing. Well, and I, I'm so appreciative uh, to have gotten to know you over the years. So I thank you very, very much for this opportunity. Well, you, I like to talk, so I've had a great time. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Please follow us, submit a rating and review, and share us with your friends. This helps our message reach more listeners. For more information about my products, visit justwantedtoask.com. Thank you. Thank you.